Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, the CMPU, in association with 898 Authentic Rock and Roll, proudly present the ultimate catalog collection. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Look, I've tried stealing podcast intros, game show intros, and movie intros, and none of them have impressed my uh, co-host, so I thought I'd try a literary approach, but I don't think even the opening to George Orwell's classic dystopian view of the future has worked either. 1984, I mean, it's a Van Halen album, it's a great book, but nothing. How's it going, Corey? How's your evening going? Well, it was going pretty good until you did the intro to the show, and now I'm just having an existential crisis about why I'm here, and my goodness. Hey, here, I thought you were going to pick something light and fun and bouncy. We're talking about Invisible Touch, the biggest album of Genesis' career, and and, and you break out 1984, George Orwell? Come on, man. Oh, I, you know, sometimes I think you've got to bring, you got to bring a bit of highbrow into proceedings, so, you know. Oh, yeah, Tony Banks. <laughs> you got to bring a little Tony, do you? Let it go. Let it go. I'll do my mic. Well, if you do Tony, I'm going to start doing my Mike Rutherford. Everybody can do a Mike Rutherford. I've got time for a quick pee. That, that's my favorite line from the Come Rain or Shine documentary. Do I got time for a quick pee? It was like they're, they're playing the intro music for them to come out. Do, do you think I've got time for a quick pee? I mean, probably not, Mike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, ultimate. this is the ultimate catalog clash. Um, yeah. And we're taking on one artist every season or part of an artist catalog to decide which is the ultimate record in the catalog and we're voting on um each song and then we're going to compile that into a score for one side of an album Corey and i give 25 points one side so that equals 50 on one side both sides equals 100 get it very very simple Um, and then we also have a little side bet to decide who gets to decide which the next artist is and we started off with one formula and moved it to another. So what we're doing is we've decided that Invisible Touch, the album that we're covering at the moment, is probably the biggest album in the Genesis catalogue, writ large and certainly commercially. So what we've got to do is, Corey and I have got to try and guess what the final score for Invisible Touch will be. And we already sort of gave those to uh, a third party who shall remain nameless to this point, even though we've named him before, I'm pretty sure, Corey. And at the end mm. of the season, we'll have a little rap episode and he'll reveal our guesses and decide and tell us who gets to choose the next artist. So... If you haven't listened to any of the show so far, folks, you can catch up on Trick of the Tale, Wind and Wuthering, and then there were three, Duke, Abacab, and the eponymous 12th album, Genesis. But like you said, last week we did Invisible Touch, this week was doing Side B. What were the scores on Side 1, Corey? Well, I know my score. Uh, I gave it, uh, I really hated this record. I gave it 23 out of 25, or 92%. <laughs> Do you remember what your score was? Oh, geez. I, I mean, come on, you're asking me to remember things now, Corey? I was well, twenty one. Mark your scores down. Twenty one. So that must be the what's that eighty four? Something like that. Beside one. You've been a busy bee though lately, Corey. On your other podcast, oh you've goodness. had some some huge milestones on your uh, your Van Halen podcast. You've done a. I was very happy to help you out with a, your hundredth episode, and then you also did a, an album rap episode with uh, Women and Children First on the and the podcast will rock Van Halen show. That's right. That last week was uh, six straight hours. Of Van Halen podcasting. It, it was pretty exhausting, but uh, you did a fantastic job with the 100. I thank you so much for that. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Mark had a blast. Uh, we've been getting nothing but great comments on that one. So, and uh, 
I was just uh, chatting with Scott on my Aerosmith show. And he's like, we're coming up to our 100th. And you had a great idea for the 100th there, too. So if you have a podcast, if you get to 100 episodes, Kevin Brown will come on your show, take it over, <laughs> and make it better. That That's just the thing he does. And then we did a live show without you again, you wanker, because you had better <laughs> things to do in the outside world with real people and shit instead of sit around your computer for three hours. Uh, you're talking about Van Halen, women and children first. But uh, we had a lot of fun anyway. And uh, we got our rankings out for women and children first. And those episodes will be uh, available wherever you get your podcast. Awesome. This I should tell people too. I, I, you can see Corey. I'm wearing a new, a new T-shirt, my new Iron Maiden T-shirt, because I went to Edmonton this past weekend oh. with my youngest daughter to watch, uh, to watch Iron Maiden. Nice. Yeah, how were they? It was. It was my third time seeing them. My daughter's second. Um, I mean, it's Iron Maiden. They're fantastic. I've seen them. So over the three gigs that I've seen, they've done 49 songs total. How many songs do you think I've seen more than once out of 49? Out of 49, I'm going to say 20. Nine. <laughs> they change the set all the time, right? So wow. this tour, they've done five from the new album Senjutsu, but they also did five from Somewhere in Time, and they did a reissue of the 86, 87 tour T-shirt, which I wanted to grab because oh, wow. it's one of my favorite album covers. So yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> but I wanted to talk to you about Corey, though, quickly, because Nicole McBrain, the, uh, the Iron Maiden drummer, had a stroke in January, which I'm sure you would, you would know, be aware of. Um, and he came out, and he was definitely... He was definitely off in places. Like he dropped the, he couldn't find the one in a few times and coming back in off a, a, you know, sort of a bridge or off a drum fill, sometimes he wouldn't quite catch it. But the rest of the band would just, you know, keep playing, wait for him to catch up, get back on the beat, and then they carry on with the song, which I thought, you know, we've been having conversations in the rock world lately about bands playing to backing tracks. And I thought that that to me, that's rock and roll, that's metal. Your drums had a stroke. Rather than replace him, you know what? He's he's doing okay. We can manage around it, and we'll still go out there and put on an absolute kick-ass show, and we'll make it work, and we'll make it real. No one was playing to backing tracks in that show for two hours. Bruce Dickinson at sixty-five was screaming his heart out, running around, and it was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. Loved it. That's that's amazing. And I've talked about this on numerous shows. That 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 is exactly rock and roll. Rock and roll is not meant to be perfect. Yeah. And if the drummer little off time that's okay i've been to shows where i was at a queen show where roger taylor completely forgot the lyrics to radio gaga and just kind of bust for a little bit and said i forgot the fucking words and they stopped and they started again and it was just fine uh yeah. axel rose guns and roses uh dropping his uh, mic pack and breaking it on the stage and you know not having any monitors for a bit and he just laughed it off grabbed a new thing and away we go uh even the nickelback concert i was in in saskatoon uh power went out at one point you know, SAS place or Craig, whatever the hell they call your rink there now. Uh, it's getting kind of old and it can't handle these kind of bigger touring shows now. So, yeah, they blew like half the breakers in, in the arena and we had to wait for those lights to come back on. So, there's Chad Kroger just cracking jokes for 10 minutes yeah. while he's waiting for the lights to come on. But he was good natured about it. That's rock and roll. Whereas Nikki Six being self conscious <laughs> because Def Leppard are better musicians than Motley Crue. So, he mimes his entire bass line for an entire show. Like, that's horseshit. I just don't know why you would go on. I mean, it's, it's like going to, you know, it's, you go and see a, a modern pop act and it's, oh, yeah, they put on such a great show and there's lots of dancers. Okay, yeah, but I kind of want to go see musicians, which, you know, it's fine if you want to go for the show. I, I, I really don't begrudge that. But, yeah, for me, I want to go see, see people play instruments and sing into microphones. And if they sound great, great. If they make a few mistakes, all the better because that's, you know, it's like, you know, we're both vinyl lovers. I grew up with records that skip in a very specific place. Right, my mm. old copy of the game. I know where all the skips are on that record. 
and I miss them because it's got personality and that means it's mine. So that show that you go and see that isn't the same as everything else, that's what makes it unique. That's what makes it your own experience. Yeah, and for me, I don't need all the big bells and whistles. Like uh, I saw you two uh, in Winnipeg on the 360 tour with the claw, like in the yeah. round in a stadium, fucking phenomenal, right? It helps they're great musicians too. But I, I can appreciate that. But I can also go see ZZ Top and they don't have any screens. They, they, they just show up. It's two mics and a drum kit, a couple of yeah. guitars and away they go. And, and they belted it out for two hours. It was one of the best shows I ever saw. Yeah. Because they're just musicians, no tracks, just playing rock and roll. Okay, well, speaking of rock and roll, we got some rock and roll to talk about here. On this first track on side two of Invisible Touch, we kick off with an upbeat, I would say slightly above mid-tempo rocker. Anything she does? Yeah. Wait, I don't know why my pause isn't working. <laughs> well, I thought we were doing Genesis, not the heat is on. Like, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's very 80s, isn't it? But those drums yeah. sound different, don't they? Yeah. It almost sounds got... like a real kit. And it's a, well, I mean, it's still electronic drums, but it's definitely Phil playing. It's not programmed, and you can hear that. And the cymbals, I think, are probably real on this one. But um, I, when I was looking through, and we were talking about this, because I, I don't know why, I always had in my brain that this was a single. I think probably because... There's the video for it. They have a full video for this song, which was used as the intro for the live gigs on the tour. But remember last week, you'd said to me that, no, they this was never released as a single. Also, I realized, never played live. That's right. Not once. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> well, and I, I think the band just kind of, I, I think originally they were trying to write it as a single and, you know, just kind of grew out of a jam. Uh, Tony threw some lyrics on it about, yeah. uh, you know, pinup uh, posters that I would hang around the studio as every band did. Uh, since the beginning of time. Uh, and it, it sounds like a single. Like, it sounds like this could have been a big yeah. hit in 1986. And I was like you. I was shocked it never was. And I think, don't you think that, like, because uh, Tonight, Tonight, Tonight was released as a single. And, I, you know, we talked about that song. We both liked that song. But this definitely has single written all over it way more, obviously, than that song does. So I, I wonder what that conversation was. Maybe, maybe it was, you know, they've already done Invisible Touch, which is kind of similar in some ways. It's got the very bright, upbeat, bouncy thing. So maybe they just thought they didn't want to do the same thing over. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, because uh, Tonight, Tonight, Tonight was the uh, uh, fifth single. So yeah. you, you think by the time you get to the fifth single, um, I don't know. And it's with Atlantic Confusion was single four. So maybe uh, anything she does would have been a nice uh, counter-programming uh, yeah. to Atlantic Confusion. Interesting to see what that conversation would have been like. Maybe because nobody likes Tony's lyrics. That's one thing I, uh, <laughs> when, when, when we get into Domino, I found a great quote from Mike Rutherford about that, that uh, I'll, I'll say for that song. Okay. But, uh, I was, I was going to say quickly though too, because, you know, obviously when we're doing this, this show, we both sit down and we listen to the songs closely and we make notes and we write down our stop points and all this kind of stuff. But I did go back and just watch, sit down and listen to the song and watch the video. And I've kind of forgotten how awful Tony Banks and Mike Rutherford are as actors. They've only got like one line each and they've just, they're just they're awful. It's just awful. And you've got Phil Collins, who's this natural. It's like, oh dear, dear, dear. Could you just, they could have had no lines really. Maybe they could have had no lines. 
why give them lines why and i haven't seen that video in forever i didn't watch the video in preparation for this but now i gotta go back and watch it because uh, i just have vague memories of it and and tony ruins everything fucker I love that arpeggiated synth. That's this thing, right? When we go through this, and I was doing this on my, um, I, was, I did a, a, an album rap episode today on my Tom Petty project, the podcast, and we were talking about Full Moon Fever and about all the little things you don't notice until you really sit down with your headphones on for something like this and you critically listen to it. I don't think I'd ever heard that little arpeggiated thing that Tony was playing there before. And it's a throwaway thing. It's not, it's not a lead. It's not up in the mix, but it just adds that, that movement to that section of the song, and it's so clever. And one thing that I got listening to the cassette for so many years was you don't really pick up the bass on the uh, chorus, that driving, yeah. whereas on, on vinyl or on this remastered edition that we're listening to here, that bass really comes through and it really kind of propels that chorus forward. Uh, it's really cool. And I, I always dug the chorus. I don't know what it means. Uh, and I don't care. It just sounds really cool and Phil sings the fuck out of it. So I'm on board. <laughs> I won't never know. I'll never get to know her or be the cause of anything she does. What does that mean? Why do you want, what, what, oh, what's she going to do that you're going to be the cause of? Well, to me, that's always, it's, it's about that sort of, well, she's over there and I'm over here uh-huh. and she's unattainable, right? Like she's kind of, it's like, it's, um, like Centerfold or Uptown Girl by yeah. Billy Joel. It's that kind of, she's, she's just too good for me and I can never, I can never influence her life because I'll never stand a chance of even talking to her, let alone being with her, right? That's what that's, it's always, that's what that's always meant to me. So she's never going to do anything because of him because he's just yeah, pining away exactly. from a distance. Gotcha. So you think about this never being played live, and Tony Banks actually said that one of the reasons was that it was just, which sounds funny coming from Genesis, that it was too hard. But if you listen to this passage, which is, you know, it's basically just the intro played with a little bit added, there's probably three synth parts going on there. So to play three live, you'd either need a second keyboard player, or you'd have to drop one of those parts out. And, you know, they were kind of perfectionists when it came to that kind of stuff. They wouldn't have wanted to drop something out. So maybe that's what it was. It was just this, this bit's just a little bit too complex to get down live with three or you know five people can you mimic uh one of these parts on the guitar because there's like very little guitars in this song yeah you probably could have yeah you probably it, tony's such an egomaniac though he's like nobody touched my keys we're not bringing in a second <laughs> dude we're just not ever doing this fucking song what we talking we were talking offline about spinal tap they could have brought in spinal tap's keyboard player that's have right he's got two hands good time all the time yeah <laughs> hey, hey viv can you mimic that that line that night oh yeah i got two hands yeah i could do that Now, is that guitar back there going? Nee, 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 nee. I'm 
pretty sure it is. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's a guitar part. Um, probably overdubbed. And again, maybe that's another thing where they thought, well, if we can't do it. But again, though, I mean, Genesis changed songs live. They changed other songs and they kind of fiddled around with them. This Because this would have been such a crowd pleaser. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know why they didn't do this one, but. Um, I do like those little sort of little trade-off phrases in this outro from Phil where he's putting those actual little vocalizations in. Um, and we should play through a little bit to the ending because the ending to this, I think, is just cool because you think it's well, going to fade out. Yeah, and actually, I, I had uh, the outro in here because um, we're listening to the remastered uh, edition of Invisible Toucher on YouTube Music. I think the outro is different than what I used to get on the cassette. Oh, okay. I, I think it used to end a little bit differently. So let, let's play it and let's see if it's how you remember it. That bit's the same. There was definitely a vocal piece that I've never heard. You're exactly. Right. There's right? A little, yeah, yeah. There's a vocal the piece. No, no. I, I saw yes. your face do that. I'm like, yes, that wasn't on the cassette or vinyl edition. Definitely not. 100% not. No. Well, I'm, I like it hoping, though. I'm, I, yeah, I mean, and I'm hoping this doesn't throw all my uh, times off now. If we've got a different <laughs> version, like, oh my God, this is going to be a nightmare. But yeah, no, it's great. That's the only I mean, song, the only song I recognize that had a little, just a little change in the outro for whatever yeah. reason. Whoever was doing the magic, yeah, we got to throw that bit in where, where Phil screams, no, no. I don't know why. It's just, just do it. <laughs> well, it was it Tony. Your... It, it toys the song together. We need to put the no, no in. It makes no <laughs> bloody sense without the no, no. <laughs> Welcome to the anti-Tony Banks uh, commentary podcast starring <laughs> Kevin Brown and Corey Morissette. <laughs> <laughs> was it Tony Banks Disappreciation Society? That's maybe what we should call us. There you go. Oh, that's a t-shirt. I'd buy that. Put that on T Public, my friend. Fuck, I love Tony Banks. I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I'm joining in with this. I love Tony Banks. One of my heroes I, I, growing up. Seriously, I bet you I can get the Cardinal on my side. Yeah, most likely. That miserable prick. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anything she does, Kevin Brown. Why don't you kick us off this week? Okay. What did you rate this song? I don't know if I'm going to upset you with this, Corey. And I, I, this maybe it's, you know, it might be, and it might not be a, a sign of things to come. But I went seven. For, uh, for music i think it's you know like i said it's got very sort of vibes of the heat is on and that came out i think a year earlier maybe two years earlier it's got you know with that horn intro and whatnot um it's very simple structurally it's got some densely layered synths um and i think it's it might be the least genesis sounding song that we've done so far apart from whodunit which can just go fuck itself um yeah. but it's played straight down the line it's musically solid but it doesn't blow my mind lyrics i went 10 I love the lyrics in this song. I think that line, editorial dreams, they can make you real. Life goes on around you and all because of you. So it's that obsession that he's talking about. You'll still be a young girl when I'm old and gray. So, it's, so she's time-locked into that image on his, on his dorm wall or whatever it is. I just think it's a very cool, very clever and concise lyric from Tony. And we've all had that feeling of our lives of not being able to be with someone we find attractive. So it's very relatable. Uh, production, I went two and a half. Um, I think you could probably, I think you probably could fade this one out, even though I do like that sort of abrupt ending. But again, the drums, man, I, it's one of the, like another one of the songs on this album that I've talked about. The drums, I just find them a little bit, a little bit lacking, and the snare is just very lifeless. So, and I can't believe how much it's been bugging me while we talked about this because I've never noticed it before, or it's, I've never really sort of tuned into it before. This, I, like, oh, I wish it didn't sound like that. So yeah, so it's seven, ten, and two and a half. So it's not a bad score, is it? Really? No, not at all. No. It's not snowbound. 
No, exactly. Which, oh, you you got some splitting to do when uh, Scott Haskin <laughs> comes on the show uh, for the season one finale. But uh, I, I really dig anything she does. It's one of my favorite deep cuts uh, from the Phil Collins yeah. era of Genesis. Uh, music, I gave it 8.5. I really dug it a lot. I actually, and I get what you're saying about the drums, and it does bother me more on this listen through. I liked them a little better on this track than I have on other tracks, though. Yeah. Like, say, Invisible Touch uh, itself for that. Like, I really kind of dislike the drums on that song now, but... I thought they were a little better here, even though, yes, the, the snare is lifeless. I do agree with you that. Uh, yeah, lyrics, I gave it a solid eight. Uh, very little problems there. I thought Tony did a great job lyrically on this tune. And uh, production-wise, I gave it a three. Uh, I like the way it sounds. I think you could trim a little bit. Um, the middle section, we don't get a solo. We just get a reprise of that intro melody again, Yeah, which is kind of repetitive. And um, I, I really kind of like the, uh, I don't know if somebody just kind of fucked up on the outro and went, ah, but the fact that they left that in, I, I love that. I, I think that that's exactly what happened. I think it was a, let's play to fade, we'll play another minute, whatever. But then someone missed a chord and, some, and it threw them and they just stopped. And I, I, I do think that's what that was. Which makes me like the song even more. So I yeah. was eight and a half, eight and three for anything she does. Could have been a big nice. hit in 1986, a la The Heat Is On uh, by Glenn Fry, which came out around the same time, right? So. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, now we're going to get into a, a, a longer jam, which... Well, it's kind of weird because uh, anything she does is like, like you said, totally very different from a lot of Genesis, right? This is pure pop. Yeah. Uh, you know, straight down the middle. Now we're getting in a domino, which, uh, you know, is more of the long form Genesis that Genesis fans uh, really love. So this one is going to be a long one, folks. Strap in. Uh, let's get started. <laughs> two things this is where electronic drums and synth drums work perfectly because it's that atmospheric moody thing that they're going for and then i love 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 that major key change into the into the first when the vocals come in i mean we're going to talk about this a lot in this song there are so many different sections in this track you know you alluded to it you know this is this is kind of pop prog is what i think of this Mm -hmm. um and so there's not just an a a b and a c section there's a d and e a couple of Fs, you know, two or three Gs and an H section in there as well. So this song's going to go everywhere. It's going to, this is going to take us on a real journey. But I love that first little change. That first little major key change is very cool. Very, very cool. I agree with you on the, uh, on the synths and the drums as well. And very Tony lyrics. The gray of evening fills the room. Like that, that's, yeah. and it, it leads me to my favorite quote about Genesis of all time, uh, spoken by none other than Mike, than Mike Rutherford, who said, Tony never did understand how to make words flow. His words are the reason why he'll never write a hit song. Although sometimes you have to admire his bravery. He's the only person who could ever get away with writing a lyric about double glazing and nylon sheets and have Phil make it work. <laughs> and he's a hundred percent right. <laughs> oh my Lord. That's his own, that's his own teammate <laughs> throwing the boost in there. So I think you can be forgiven when Mike's having a go. That's right. I'm going to send Mike one of those, uh, Tony Banks, the appreciation <laughs> uh, society t-shirts. He'll wear it proudly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my lord but he's right he's like that's the reason tony will never write a hit single and obviously out of the solo careers tony's fell the flattest right like it was all mostly instrumental stuff right and yeah i mean well he, I mean, you know, he never made a dime probably on his solo stuff whereas mike had mike the mechanics phil collins put the odd song out that people enjoyed <laughs> well tony had a, I mean he had a good 
he did have a good solo career. It's just not mainstream, right? Because he did. I mean, he's written, I think, four symphonies, which is not to be sniffed at because that's a pretty big undertaking. It's just that, you know, in the mainstream, has, has, he, has he made his millions from that? No. He made his millions from Genesis and then he went off and did what he wanted to do. Uh, before we get into nylon <laughs> sheets of blankets, uh, uh, lyrically, uh, this is uh, Tony's anti-war song. So Mike had an anti-war song on side A with Atlantic Confusion. Yeah. Uh, here's Tony's version. Uh, this first section here, dubbed In the Glow of the Night, uh, is a first-person account of someone who doesn't know that tomorrow is coming. So, you know, war torn, maybe it's uh, the threat of nuclear winter or whatever. Uh, you're not sure what's coming. And I really love that tonal shift because we kind of get, you know, Ray keeps running down the window pane. Time is running out for me. Yeah. uncertainty about your future and then bang uh you, you know you, you come right into it and, and shit starts hitting the fan when he said that in an interview i read that it, it, the inspiration for it was the 1982 lebanon war um and so the, the this scene that we're hearing in the song is set in a hotel room in beirut just minutes before the bombs start to hit the city right and so when we get into the song later and you think and with that in mind you think yeah that's you've got that sense of foreboding and waiting for something to happen, something bad to happen. You know it's coming, but you don't know when. So I will agree with Mike when he says that uh, Tony will never write a hit single, uh, but he can tell a story. Like when he really, when he when Tony writes lyrics well, he's telling a story. He's doing yeah. that fantastically in this song, I think. I love the Dao one. Like only Phil Collins can pull that off. It's like we're talking about James Hetfield. Yeah. The, yeah. And like all that stuff. Only James <laughs> Hetfield can do that. Only Phil Collins can do the Dao one. Well, and it's because it's, it's kind of an Axel Rose thing, right? That's what Axel does. But Axel does it all the time, whether the song needs yeah. it or not. This is exactly perfect for the song. And it need, you need to do it that way. Because if you do, you know what you have done, I, you wouldn't work yeah. or done. Like it just, it would feel flat, right? So. All right, so there's where I'll disagree with Mike Rutherford when he said Tony never did understand how to make words flow. Those words <laughs> flow quite nicely. I always loved, and for all the pointless, violent, silent tombs, like it just sounds cool. Yeah, another pointless, violent, silent. I mean, that's a great fucking lyric. And could it be that we shall be together again? Because there's a there's an implication there that what he's saying is, am I also going to die? Because he's yeah. talking to someone who's already dead, and like, am I am I going to pop my clogs here? Like, it's it's a very sort of it's a scared character, right? It's a character that's uncertain and scared.
can't imagine a lot of vocalists could make that 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 verse work. Like really, lyrically, that that sheets of double glazing help to keep outside the night. Yeah, only foreign city sirens can't cut through. Nylon sheets and blankets help to minimize the cold, but they can't keep out the chilling sounds. I I, I get the the meaning behind the lyrics and all. It's very cool, but to sing that and yeah. the sound convincing on it, I think would be really difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a great. I really genuinely, I've always loved that lyric. Cause, you know, sheets of double glazing help to keep outside the night. So that's your. That's our houses, right? We don't hear too much, but we don't hear the city. We don't hear all the problems in the world because the the glass keeps it away. Only for instance, times, but then nylon sheets and blankets help to minimize the cold. So if you think about more of a, you know, a, a house that's been bombed out and the glass has been bombed out, well, you put you hang anything in the windows to try and keep out the chilling sounds. And I love that sort of counterpoint too between to minimize the cold, but they can't keep out the chilling sounds. So we could have used frightening, terrifying. There could have been he could have used any other word there, but chilling sounds matches up with minimize the call so well i think that's what i think it's one of the best lines in this song for me i love it i, I know that that uh, verse uh, takes a lot of flack and make is it gets made fun of yes. a lot but uh, i i think it works uh, really really well absolutely I mean, God, that's just, it shivers up my spine every time I listen to this section of this song because it drops everything out and you get this beautiful sort of break where it really is and you know it's the calm before the storm. Even if you've never listened to this song, if you have any sort of musical sense about you, you know that shit's going to go completely sideways really soon, but you get this just brief little respite before that happens and it's fabulous. It it really is. Phil just sings with so much pain and heartbreak in this song, like, and it's one thing I don't know if they've ever been able to capture live. It's just the emotion uh, that that they portray in the in the official album version. I think that the live version is always more energetic in the up tempo sections. But I, I completely agree with you. I don't, man. That's really hard to replicate that vocal because yeah. Phil just nails it. That's it is one of his. You know, because it is not belting. He's not stretching or reaching, but he's hitting your. Yeah, he's hitting your emotions really, really hard. Yeah. All right, we're coming up to the transition now. Here we go. such a cinematic transition hey yeah like it's got this big hollywood feeling it always to me it's that kind of you know in shawshank where norton comes into the cell and oh we did the man up and disappeared like a fart in the wind and he throws the stone at mm-hmm. the poster and it goes through and you hear it skitter away and fall down and it's that sort of drop and the realization that oh holy shit that's what this always does for me it's like oh 
we're, we're definitely going somewhere completely different now. The song's yeah. never going to go back to those old themes now. We're going to stick in this, so. And now we get into the last domino. Yep. Yes. Yep. Dang it, listening on the cassette, I always thought that was blood on the windows. Millions of ordinary people are dead, is what Ah. I always thought that lyric was. Cool, yeah, misheard lyrics is a a great thing. But there's another thing that they do here is, it's again that major key lift. Where they come in and they, blood on, or it comes in and, I don't know, uh, blood on the windows. So it just, again, all these dynamic movements within the song, both tempo-wise, volume-wise, you know, chord change-wise, this song should be like, oh God, it should be exhausting because it never sits still, but they manage it all so well and it's all sequenced so perfectly that, and we're tipping our hands here, obviously, because I think we both love this song, Corey. Um, but the amount of movement in this song just, it blows me away literally every time I listen to it. Uh, and we're only halfway through. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally. Thank God dude. for that because I could listen to this all night. <laughs> so. You want to talk about a hard line to sell? Take a look at the beautiful river of blood. Yeah. It's dark, man. Oh, no kidding. It gets darker in the next one. It certainly does. But I wonder, I always wonder if this section is sort of, it's almost like you're, you've, you've, you know, if it was a movie, it'd be sort of a one camera single shot kind of thing in that Beirut hotel bedroom where here you sort of, it's more, it's almost like the, the, the antagonist's point of view take a look at the beautiful river blood you know what i mean like it's that kind of switch to the malevolent rather than the so it's the it's the, the oppressor rather than the victim almost it's the omaha uh, beach scene from saving private ryan yeah there you go So now we got children uh, swimming in the river of blood. And again, a misheard lyric for the longest time. I thought they were playing with books. And I thought that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> children don't play with books. They read books. Apparently it's playing with boats. Yeah. And I, I mean, again, if, if I'm going to extend out the, the thing I was talking about, this is almost like, you know, the blood on the windows, millions of ordinary people out there is, is the, you know, the, the two mile up view. Where now the this whatever the if it is the antagonist now they're actually really close and they can really see the pain and suffering on the ground. That's and again I'm, maybe I'm reading too much into this and Tony's just throwing these lines away, but I, that's the way I've always interpreted this, which makes it really more menacing and a lot darker even than than the lyrics might suggest, right? Yeah, no, I, I think you're right on the money on that. Uh, Tony doesn't seem like a guy who's just going to throw lyrics in about nothing. He's yeah. going to research them and actually, even if they don't sound right. He's going to put them in there because they're technically correct, even if it even if it's not pleasant to the ear. <laughs> and Phil, just bloody well sing them to the best of your ability, sir. Exactly, and he nailed it.
cool is that, man? That section. <laughs> oh, man, alive. I'm always kind of... I don't know about you, though, too, Corey, because, again, I mean, I, look, Cards on the Table, this is one of my favourite Genesis songs. My score will reflect it. And I'm always kind of waiting for this section. When that guitar comes in, because you know where it's going to lead. And we know where the song goes in the sort of the second half of the song, because we it takes, you know, and I've written down here, it's like seven and a quarter minutes before we get to the chorus. And yes, it's two parts of a song, and it's the chorus of the second part, but really, that's the hook of the song, and that's the chorus. But this is where the build starts into that section. I just love it. Very Mike and the Mechanics. That palm yeah. muted, you know, living years, some of that kind of stuff that Mike did with uh, Mike Mechanics. You get that sense here. But again, it again the song changes. It drops out and you get this lovely, gentle, very mellow synth solo from Tony where it's not overpowering, it's not too much, and it, but it just carries the song into the... We're gonna, again, we're going to go into a different section again now. And this transition piece here is, is just perfect. I just love how they panned the guitars left to right, too, during yeah. the, the keyboard uh, solo there. That was really cool. It's bouncing around, and it was really, really great. Uh, so I shuttled ahead literally just six seconds uh, to get to my night, uh, next time stat. So. Is it... Is it- I always love that refrain because that's very much Cuban nature. Well, uh, you've never uh, did see such a terrible thing as you seen last night on the TV. Maybe if we're lucky, they will show it again. That's yeah. why people slow down at car crashes and, oh, I saw something gruesome on TV. I hope they show a replay. Like, it happens yeah. in sports all the time, right? Oh, his leg broke and, you know, went just, just straight sideways. Let's show it a hundred times. It's just yeah. kind of that Roman gladiator-esque uh, human nature thing where you just want to see people maim each other and, it's such a terrible thing to see. You can almost put in quotes because you, you'll watch it over yeah. and over again. It's that perverted voyeurism that, you know, the human race, sadly. And it's the reason why, you know, American Idol shows all the failed auditions and why someone has to be voted off the island rather than some of the, you know, it's that sense of someone's got to lose. We like it. We like seeing someone lose, you know, and it's a horrible part of our nature, but it's there and it's great when people comment on it this, um, this eloquently, I think. I'll tell you what, though, there's nothing you can do when you're next in line. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, people can't see us, Corey, but we're just rocking out here, man, because <laughs> God damn, I love that. If you clicked on this episode and, and you don't like this song, like, you're a thief of joy. <laughs> there it is. There's the Corey Morissette catchphrase. I love it. <laughs> There's another T-shirt we need. There you go. It's the contrast between the guitars and the keys that make that section for me because there's Mike, bang, 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 like he's yeah. really hammering away on it, and Tony's uh, nice and slow and melodic, and it just, it, it meshes so well. 
I mean, this whole second side of this album, and we haven't talked about the last two songs on this yet, but there's a brilliant, and I forgot to mention it on anything she does, there's a brilliant interplay in the verses with there where uh, Mike plays one phrase in the riff and Tony plays the second phrase. So the balance of guitar and keyboard, you know, because we talked lots on the first two, three albums in the Phil Collins era where, and it was a source of frustration for you where it was too much Tony and not enough Mike. But on this album, I mean, the balance is just, absolutely spot on and this song's as, as good an example as you can find i think it's like the force uh, everything works when everything's perfectly in balance light side <laughs> and dark side tony and mike if we play from here we're getting another different transact uh, section where we get this transition into that lighter section that in that reprises the intro to you know the second part of the song and again you talked about you get that panned left and right really processed muted guitar and then you get chimes in this section too so again this song never sit still you're never hearing the same thing twice in i don't you know like 30 seconds and thematically it's enough of a change from where it was earlier that this reprise mm-hmm. really kind of oh it's so good yeah let's play it So like you said, it's the same It's the same thing that they did earlier, but it's not because it sounds different. And Mike's playing this weird sort of squelch, squelch is the word I would use, right? It's like a, yep. it's probably an auto-war on there with like with a ton of reverb and probably some phaser or something. Like it's just super, super processed and conde- uh, compressed, but it sounds so good. And it, cha- and again, it, it changes the, changes this section up again. It seems more hopeful than when we heard that the first time, because the first yeah. time was very morose and in silence, and like it was more depressed. Whereas here, maybe our our character is a little more hopeful for the future. Like you know, maybe uh, will it last forever? Will it last forever? Forever? Like you know, yeah. Maybe we're, maybe we're coming out of it. So maybe closer to the end of wartime, he's maybe seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. There's a drum fill that Phil does here. That it's a long drum fill and it spans multiple bars. But I think, again, it just shows the brilliance of Phil Collins. And again, I, I think so, I do sometimes think that I think it would have sounded so cool on those heavily gated, um, you know, in the air tonight era drums. But the plane itself in this section is just just wizardry. Uh, it was just wizardry. Okay, Magic. My note, my note for 859 was drums. <laughs> That vocal there. I mean, it's he's taken again. We're nine some minutes into the song here for Phil to just really take all the breaks off and just go for it. And his voice soars up because a lot going on there musically, but that vocal cuts through all of it and it's just transcendent. And it's another moment that unfortunately doesn't translate live. Yeah, uh, you have Phil and he's kind of skipping around stage. He goes, "You're the next in line, and the next," and he's just doing that for like four minutes. 
Yeah. And it's like enough already. I, I prefer the, the album version much yeah. better to the, the live version, except That's for fair. one moment, which uh, is, is at the end in that this song, I don't know if you want to play anymore, but it ends on a, on a fade out. And the live version oh. ends with a great bow, bow, like just yeah. perfect concert ending. I would if th- this would have been a ten ten five for me if it had that ending. Oh, so he's just showing a bit of his hand there. This is not a ten ten five for Corey. It's not a ten ten five. Okay. Well, what, what I, I you know it does fade out, and I think that the the fade out there's not a tongue goes on. So let's just jump straight to the score. So if it's not a ten ten five for you, Corey, how are you rating this one? It's a nine nine four. <laughs> i love domino it's it's my favorite long song uh of genesis's the genesis's that's not a word uh, of genesis career um second home by home by the sea second home by the sea is a close second but um i love domino i've loved it ever since i heard it and when, when i'm going back and listening to old genesis and there are longer stuff and it doesn't work for me like, like domino does nothing ever kind of reaches this plateau yeah. uh musically it, it's so good uh i i docked it nine uh because um a couple of repetitive moments i don't know uh, okay. I, I can't even really tell you why uh, and the the outro which i'm going to put on production i only, that's why i gave that a four because i wanted that big concert ending that end so yeah. perfect uh lyrically uh slightly maybe tony's up his own ass just a bit he's just crowning a bit so i i, I docked him a mark just for that he can't see uh-huh. the colon like he, he could still breathe but he's he's slightly up his own ass which is fine river of blood always conjures up an image i, I don't i think back to the shining the first time i saw the shining with the blood on the elevator so that that's my own thing but i'm going to punish tony for it so uh nine nine and four this thing is damn near perfect and it's the best long song in my opinion genesis has ever done uh kevin i'm assuming you're a six six and two. Oh, not that high i mean you know. oh <laughs> <laughs> no ten ten and five man i mean it, I this figured. is this is one of the songs and it's so funny because i'd written in my notes for this Literally, I'll read out exactly what I wrote the sentence. Also, comma, it's superb the way they end this one live. And the word live is a link to the performance where you, and a timestamp thing where you do get that beginning. Because you're right, that, that ending is phenomenal. And I think, you know, and I don't, I don't always love a fade out. You know, if anyone listens to me and Randy on Seaside Pod Review, I don't always love a fade out because it is a bit sort of, I don't know how to end this song. Yeah. E- just write an ending, you know. There is a natural ending to most songs. I don't mind if they it sometimes, but I think this one could have used that natural ending. But, um, you know, it's it's a four chord song. Sorry, not a four chord song. A thirty four chord song, Corey. There are thirty four chords in this song, and I think actually they invented three of them for this song, just specifically for this song. Uh, that makes sense. But like I said, it just it moves around so much. It never sits still. Like you said, there are a couple of re- repetitions, but the refrains rather than it, it never gets sort of boring or old to me. I, I think this, you know, it's top 10. This might be a top five Genesis song for me. It's yeah. on every single mixtape I've ever made. It's on every single mix CD I've ever made. It's on every playlist I've ever made. Because I just, I adore it. The lyrics, we've been through them. I think the fantastic is that, you know, you talked about the, you never did see such a, uh, as we saw on the TV, da, da, da. That critique of pop culture, I think is fantastic. Um, but, Production-wise, it just everything works. Like the electronic drums, I think suit the song. That's where it doesn't bug me. The transitions are all fantastic, um, and it's a ten-minute song that doesn't drag. No, it really it earned every drag, single right? minute. Like, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So for that, I think alone is so. Yeah, ten, ten, and five for me. Probably, probably no, no surprise for you on that one. Well, no, and I, I'm very, very close to that too. And the band obviously liked it too. They played it 324 uh, times uh, live. Uh, still a great live song. It doesn't quite reach the heights. 
of this version. The, the only other thing I want to say about the outro is you have such a cinematic song. Like, listening to this song is almost like watching a movie. It's yeah. like watching a Christopher Nolan movie. And you, you don't, it, it deserves an ending. It, it, it shouldn't just fade out, right? Like, like you that's said, fair. it's just... Yeah, that's fair. Something this cinematic need, need, needs a proper ending. And how they ended in concert is absolutely perfect. And they could have done it here and they just didn't. So uh, that's the only reason why I docked it some marks, really. Okay, so can I... Well, you've swayed me. I'm, I'm gonna, and this is unprecedented, folks. In the history, the short history of Ultimate Catalog Clash, is I'm going to change my mind and I'm going to go 10, 10, 4.5. I'm only going to dock it at half a mark, but I think you're right. I think you've, you've definitely made a, a really solid argument there that it's almost a bit of a cop-out. Yeah. So I'm happy to go... I'm happy to, I'm happy to come down. I'm happy to come down a half a mark, so... A lot of people who, do, who don't like Christopher Nolan would say it's like the ending of Inception, where it kind of ends on a... You don't quite know. You think you might know what happens at the end of Inception, but it doesn't definitively tell you. Whereas anyone who likes Christopher Nolan will tell you the whole point of the ending isn't the point you're thinking it is. It doesn't matter uh, what that top is doing. It, I don't want to spoil a, you know, 13-year-old movie, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, I've definitely seen Inception. I just don't remember it. But well, I, I at remember... the end... Okay, I'm going to spoil it now. At the end, okay, uh, Leo uh, Di, Di, DiCaprio's character uh, made a decision that he he spun the top to see if he was in the dream world or on the real world. That, that was yeah. his totem, right? Spin the top. He knows if it wobbles, he's in the real world. If it just keeps spinning, he's still dreaming. He made a decision at the end of that movie. He spun the top and saw his kids, and he walked off to be with his kids. He didn't wait for to see what the top did. So the point of the ending isn't, is he in the dream world or the real world? The point is, he doesn't care. Yeah, it's Wherever he is he right now, it's what is where he wants to be. If he's yeah. dreaming, fine. If he's not, fine. And they, they do put a little wobble uh, in, in, the, in the top, and you know it's kind of be a, a little hint, but then they cut the black. And yeah. everyone's like, oh, the fucking ending sucks. What happened? Where is he? <laughs> the whole point is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like, yeah. uh, have you ever seen the movie The Wrestler? Yes. Same thing there. I mean, so, uh, you know, Mickey Rourke's on the top rope. If he jumps off, there's a very good chance he's going to die. And all you do is you see him jump off the top rope and then we cut to black. Again, the point isn't if he lives or dies. The point is the choice he made. The point is he doesn't care. He's at his, he's in his home. He's with his people. He yeah. doesn't care. That's the point of the ending. The point is that he jumped. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That is the whole point of that. Like, how do people. I, I, People are stupid sometimes, Corey. I don't know. They really are. I fucking hate people. <laughs> All well, right. You know. <laughs> so pretty good score on Domino uh, after our little uh, tangent there about movies. But uh, now we're going to come up uh, to another single uh, from the Invisible Touch album. Uh, this one uh, was a pretty decent hit. It was the second single uh, released uh, August 1986. This is Throwing It All Away. I can already guarantee I'm ranking this song higher than you because this is one of my favorite uh, slow songs, like ballads uh, of all okay. time. I love love the guitar. It oh. sounds great. It's such a pleasing melody. And that that verse, need I say I love you? Need I say I care? Need I say that emotion something we don't share? I don't want to be sitting here trying to deceive you because you know that I know, baby, that I don't want to go. Yeah. That is fucking good oh. writing. That's Mike Rutherford. Oh, man. I love, love, love that. 
it, I, I mean, I think in the, the living years might might yeah. beat it for a sort might. of a, a lyric. It might. I don't know if it does, but it might. But this is this is Mark Rutherford's. It might. It's his best Genesis ballad for sure. I think lyrically. Yeah. I think. I think for sure. Yeah. I, um, I love I love the Mike tunes and I love these just kind of simple slow like follow you follow me. I gave that yeah. very very high marks. In Two Deeps, another one from this very album. Uh, this is right up there with those for me. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, absolutely. It's great. Well, if you go to 56, though, you get this little keyboard lead into that pre-chorus, which is great. And you get some, again, we're talking about Mike. This is a ballad, but you get some great bass work in this in this little section here. Like I tell you, this is a first. This is the first time we varied greatly on the next time step. You said 56, I had 57. <laughs> Easy thing to do as a bass player there is just sit on the root, and it would yep. it would be fine. It would work perfectly well, but Mike puts that little run in, and he comes off the root note, and it works so perfectly because it adds it adds a harmony in, which you're not expecting a harmony part from the bass guitar, but it adds that harmony part in, which again is just these guys are fucking geniuses, man. There's a reason why they survive as long as they do because they're brilliant at what they do, and these little things it's what elevates these songs to what we were getting for ballads uh, in the 80s and what it gives us some extra flavor some extra color tony's yeah. fantastic on this song i love the keys on this song and now we're coming into you know the, the great little uh, kind of bridge section here which leads into a nice little call and response that i wanted to play if you're okay with that Oh, it heals my soul. I was having a, a busy week and just listening to the, to this side even, but like this yeah. song especially just takes me back to my happy place. Here's what I've written down, Corey. And again, I'm, it's going to tip my hand a little bit, but this song's always, it's always like, it's like, it's a warm sweater. It's yeah. comforting. It's like a big hug. It's a happy song. Even though the lyrics in this song are actually really quite despondent and forlorn, melodically, it's just beautiful. Like, oh my, it just, it just carries you along. It's so nice. <laughs> It, you talk about the lyrics. There's a great fuck off moment in the lyrics coming up in 216 <laughs> that I absolutely love. It's it's such a beautiful song. Oh, my Lord. Now, What's cool about that to me is that the harmony part is below the lead because usually your harmony is above, right? Usually yeah. your fifth or your third goes above, but this one, he drops down. Again, it's just, it's so, we keep saying that, I'm getting repetitive, but it's so clever. It's such a great little decision to, instead of, because you could sing exactly the same part on Octave Up, it would sound great, but this, we're dropping things down, we're dropping the, the feel of the song down, and we're, we're, we're leading to this line that you're talking about. So that sort of lower register harmony, I just think works so, it just works spectacularly. And who thinks to do that, right? Like, yeah, who's going to play, sing the melody below the main? Yeah. Like, that's... That's so fucking cool. Someday 
that is the best fuck off <laughs> fuck you lyric i've ever heard because it's still sung so pleasant someday you'll be sorry so light and breezy and he's telling her you know what's gonna happen you're gonna realize you love me and i'm gonna be like fucking taillights bitch with my middle finger up fuck you <laughs> love it oh that's Tail so good lights, bitch yeah <laughs> the only oh, sound you'll Lord. hear is the sound of your voice calling calling after me yeah it is it's superb and it's like i said it's very very cutting and, and quite cynical over top of this beautiful melodic flowing piece of music yeah it's just superb absolutely superb and that's the bit where it drops right out right so the drums drop out and you get this sort of almost like a halftime swing thing to it that, that those really harsh lyrics sit on top of. Very clever. That's right. Oh, Phil, Phil Collins uh, said it was like a samba, a one-note samba. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, fuck, yeah, there yeah. you go. I'd never thought of that before, yeah. Now, what do you think about when they do this live? This is the the call and response song yeah. in their set, where where Phil does that digares, and then everybody he calls that back. Some people really dig that. Some people really don't. Where do you land on that? Oh man, I think it's, if I was in the crowd, it would be euphoric. I think it would be it's it's AO at Wembley. It's it's yeah. yeah I mean, I, I think it's perfect. It's the perfect place for it. I think it's, it's a you? perfect song too. Yeah, perfect yeah. song to do a to do a call and response. There's not a lot of tunes in genesis's catalog you're not going to do a call and response in who done it i didn't do it i didn't do it i didn't do it like that'd be ridiculous uh, oh my lord <laughs> all right I, I, i'll i'll kick off throwing it all away okay played 309 times one of my all-time favorite genesis songs definitely top 10 maybe top five i gave it a nine nine and a half and four and a half uh, musically, I can't find much fault. I don't even know why the fuck I gave it nine. I'm bumping that up right now. If you can change your score on the fly, <laughs> it's at least a nine and a half. Because there's something brilliant about this. Nine and a half for lyrics. Uh, it, it, maybe it's it's the cosmic shift from verse one to the third verse. Where it's, <laughs> I, I love you. I love you. Now fuck off. I'm gone, bitch. You know, it's, yeah. it's that whole thing. It's a little bit of a, a tonal shift, but lyrically, it's absolutely fantastic. And production, four and a half. Um, three minutes, 50 seconds, perfect length. Uh, nothing wrong with this song at all. Um, I'm not sure why I didn't give it 10, 10, and 5. It's one of my favorites, but 9.5, and 9.5, and, and 4.5 and is where I land on throwing it all away. How about you, Kevin? Well, I'll just, I'll, I'll save it. I'll go 10, 10, and 5. I mean, this, <laughs> maybe this, and you said at the beginning that you thought you might rate this higher. This is one of my favorite Genesis songs, too, because, again, it's just one of those utterly, utterly perfect pop songs. There's not a single note out of place on this song. The lyric is fantastic, and I think that tonal shift between the first and second verses, again, it's one of those clever things where the first verse, he's not really got, the, you know, the character hasn't really got to grips with this relationship disintegrating, and that last bit, he has accepted it and has realized that he needs to move on and fuck that person who screwed him over, right? So I, I think that stark contrast is phenomenal. You know, and it's got that sort of, it's almost got that Greek tragedy thing to it, right? Where you've got the, the two or three acts, and the third act is, yeah, fuck you, I'm out. And we um, forgot about the second verse, which is now who will light up the darkness and who will hold yeah. your hand, who will find you the answers when you don't understand. And then why should I have to be the one who has to convince you? <laughs> like, yeah. He's already getting pissed off with her. Yeah. It's building. Oh, man. Yeah. So maybe it isn't such a total shift. I kind of miss <laughs> the, the anger in verse two as well. Yeah, it's so good. I mean, 
I think, like we said, we, we talked about, you know, the living years, I think, is one of those weird moments that not many artists ever get to. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, lo- it's, it's a love song that is so heartfelt and so brilliant that it comes around once in a lifetime. But I think, like I said, in terms of Genesis output with Mark Rutherford, I don't know if he ever wrote a better short song lyric than this. I think it's just, like, what are you going to criticize in this song, man? This sounds phenomenal. The production's great. The drums don't irritate me on this because they're not sort of, you know, there's no weirdness on this. It's played straight. It's a fairly straight backbeat in terms of drums. It's perfect. It's a perfect pop song. It's I'm just amazed they didn't hit number one, to be honest with you, because I think this would have been, I, I, you know. Where did this one land uh, on, on the charts? I think this was number, f- uh, number four in the US and t- only 22 in the UK. Yeah. Because Invisible Touch didn't do as well in the UK as it did in the US. And I think it might be that, like, I think I, I, maybe I talked about this last week that, um, or was it the Queen thing I was talking about that? But anyways, at the time in when they released this album in 80, is it 86? Yes. Touch? Yeah. It was the start, really, of the sort of the, the indie movement, right? The indie rock movement. And so Genesis were kind of, they were in that sort of, well, that's the old guard. We all want to move away from that. And they weren't getting as much play on the radio. Or certainly on like, you know, Radio 1 on BBC and the mainstream sort of stations weren't playing them as much because they wanted to play Stone Roses and, and Happy Mondays and that kind of stuff. So I think they might have suffered a little bit for that. But to me, this is, I, again, it's as perfectly constructed and written a pop song as you'll ever hear. It really is. And I found the reason why I didn't mark it 10, 10, 5. If you look at the cover for the Throwing It All Away uh, single, um, Tony Banks is wearing the most ridiculous sweater. Uh, I'm going to share it here, Kevin, so you can see it. See that sweater? That's awful. That's why I docked it. Like, Mike looks cool. He's wearing kind of a, a cool coat. Phil's got a leather coat. And Tony's there with a reject oh, from the Cosby Lord. show wearing a Cliff Huxtable sweater. Like, fuck off. They put the synths in the music. <laughs> you put the synth. <laughs> we're, we're, we're not going down that road, no. Oh, we're not, no. We're not doing Cosby. <laughs> Oh boy, we've gotten some tangents here tonight, my friend. What do you say? We got one more song left, and it's the instrumental. Let's check out the Brazilian. Nominated for a Grammy for Best Pop Instrumental Performance, Orchestra Group or Soloist. One of only, I was just looking, one of only five Grammy nominations Genesis ever had, which is really surprising. Um, and possibly a little bit more surprising even that this was one of them. Who do you think the Brazilian is? I don't know. It's got that sense of, it's almost a, I've always thought of it as sort of like a gangstery or a, a shadowy figure, you know what I mean? Like it's got that. It feels like a drug dealer. Feels yeah, like a drug that, dealer. That kind of like, thing. Yeah, there you go. Almost something like out of Miami Vice, maybe because Bill was obviously on Miami Vice, and in the air tonight was a big song from that yeah. soundtrack the year previous. So I always kind of thought uh, maybe it's a uh, Tony's uh, drug dealer. Except Tony wouldn't do drugs; he'd like drink tea. So it's Tony's tea dealer. This is tea dealer. Hey, 
you cover a band um, called Aerosmith, you know, staying, staying, sleeping late and smoking tea. Smoking tea, uh, that's you right, know, baby. You can smoke tea, so. <laughs> you know, the lyrics for this song don't really work for me. That That's really the, my yeah, main it was, it was It was the big thing I wrote down to, you know, I lyrically just, just lazy. It's lazy from Tony. I tell you what's not lazy, though, is how this uh, song was built in that Tony just recorded, like Mike and Phil were just fucking around in the studio. He recorded 20 seconds of it and built a loop out of it. And then just kind of did everything else on top of that. Like that's that that's pretty inventive. Yeah, I mean the guys. Uh, you know, we we rag on Tony Banks a little bit for being maybe a little bit pretentious and having bad taste in sweaters. But there's no question <laughs> at all that the guys here for music is incredible yeah. and unusual for a you know what is essentially a pop musician at this point that he could they can build this because this song. I don't know if there's anything else that's ever been written that sounds like this, Corey. No. I, I it, it sounds no. kind of Miami Vicey, the uh, score wise, but but yeah. then we get into kind of what you could almost call the chorus, I guess, uh, yeah. coming up at like one ten, where it, it kind of takes a, a, a different turn. Uh, did you have a, a timestamp before one ten? Go there, yeah. It's unusual, isn't it? It's yeah. a very unusual melody, and it's almost, you know, because the, the title's the Brazilian, but to me it almost sounds more like Eastern or Oriental. Can you say Oriental? I'm not too sure if that's... If you can say Brazilian, you can say Oriental, sure. I suppose so, yeah. So it's got more of an Oriental flavor to it, because it's almost that, kind of like that Japanese Koto thing. It sounds, it's got that little kind of, you know, undercurrent to it, but, but I've never heard anything like it. Like I said, I've never, it's such a weird, unusual, odd... Well, that's just other all synonyms. I'm just saying the same fucking thing, aren't I? But it is. It's just What'd really you, weird. It really is. What did you think of that? Like uh, that? You almost want to call it a symbol crash, but it's electronic. It was just kind of that splashy wash. That that's the bit, and we'll talk about that at the end. And that's going to cost this song a couple of points because I don't like that. Mm-hmm. I think I think if you think about a real a big, even a China symbol or a big a big splash symbol, there would sound so much better. Because to me, it just it doesn't have an attack on it. They're taking the the, the of the symbol, but not the. They're not getting that attack piece, which yep. I'd rather have the the real symbol there. Hell, I'd almost rather have uh, Roger Taylor's Gong. Oh, there we from go. From when they did when they did bow rap in concert, right? Just <laughs> hey, just ring ring him up on the telly. We'll get Derek Smalls to sanitize your telephone, then I'll ring up uh, Roger Taylor and see if I can borrow <laughs> his uh, his Gong. No, you're not borrowing my fucking Gong. Get your own fucking Gong. <laughs> get your own fucking Gong, you fucking wanker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure Roger Taylor doesn't sound like that. But that that's just now my, my de facto uh, British voice. That's your British voice. Yeah, no, I'm just yeah. I'm just joining in now at this point. So. <laughs> love it, love it. <laughs> It's not pleasant, and that doesn't no. mean it's bad, but it's really unpleasant. Like, it's a very sort of, because, you know, horror movies do this all the time where they'll put in those kinds of, it's a diminished seventh or something, right? Where it's, it's got that seventh note in it, but you get that, the second note or the, the, the flat second. It's like, oh, that's kind of making my teeth itch. See, if I was equating this song to an episode of Miami Vice, this is about the middle of the second act. 
where, where the bad guys are really doing something nefarious and Crockett and Tubbs are kind of at their low point of the episode. You know, something happened, they can't figure it out, they're mad at each other, whatever kind of happens. This is kind of that section of the episode. Before we get into the, the high highs uh, of the rising action of the climax and the big boat chase uh, through the Miami Harbor or whatever. Corey, are you saying that Miami Vice was formulaic and predictable? Not at all. <laughs> Every episode was, was a, a, a unique tone poem. <laughs> a tone poem, Jesus Christ. <laughs> this is a tone poem. It's a Tony poem. <laughs> That's right. It's a Tony poem with no words the way it should be for Tony. I kid. I kid. Okay. Uh, ne- next time. So I 238, because this is where it's the only thing in this song that you could really call a bridge, where it is difficult because it's an instrumental. So verse, chorus, bridge, you don't really need, but this is where everything else drops out, right? So then you get this real cavalcade of fucking just sound effects, basically, right? think that's so cool man like you got a bit of fill in there and again i think that that's you, you know we'll talk about this in the race at the end i think you could definitely have the the gated drums in there i'd love to hear a remix of invisible uh, touch with some real drums on some songs i think it would it would bring it into you know this century or this decade maybe not well not so century i guess but this decade because it it does sound like it's it's era right of all the genesis records this is the one that's really time locked um, and it's that's mainly, why, mainly because of the drums. Exactly. That's why uh, I want to ask you, are you shocked that they only played this on the Invisible Touch tour? Because it's so fitting to that time. I don't think you could translate this. If you played no. this in, in 2007, I don't think it works. Whereas you could play Invisible Touch, throwing it all away, even Domino. Uh, when you're yeah. playing that on a real kit with you know less synths and, and more guitars and stuff, it works. This track, I don't think does. No, totally. I mean, I... I was actually kind of surprised. I know the I knew they did it live lots, but I didn't realize that they had um, done it basically. I think pretty much every show on that tour, right? Yep. So yeah, no. In answer to your question, no, it doesn't surprise me. Okay, this is the part where Crockett and Tubbs have, have caught the Brazilian. He was just about to board his plane <laughs> to, to get away, and Crockett and Tubbs saved the day. They found the cocaine, and they arrested the Brazilian. That, that's what that guitar kind of symbolized to me. It's either that or they've had the Brazilian, and the, you know, the, the, the wax has been removed and ripped off, and now they're, sort of, they're, just, they're in the, back in the lobby area just relaxing after a traumatic experience. Because you know? it could I be was that, wondering, Let's not rule it out. I was wondering how many episodes it would take before you mentioned pubic hair. <laughs> and we're in episode what? And, and it finally happened? What are we, 11? 9? I don't know. Something like, I, don't know. <laughs> I, I lost track a while ago. <laughs> Wind and withering kind of ruined me. That was so far back. I've just been on autopilot ever since. <laughs> I was just looking at it. It was kind of surprising, actually, though, when you talk about this being played live. This was played fifth. Yeah. And sequenced in between That's All and then the, the In the Cage medley. Which is such a weird 
Because you would think yeah, that, that this could, you know, you, you could end, a, you know, the main set before the encore, you could end with this. Or you could put it, I don't know, like after throwing it all away or tonight, 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 or, or even Domino or something in the set like that. But putting it in between those two songs, it's like, oh, that's, that's kind of very odd. Uh, I always thought maybe coming back from the, for the encore. First song yeah, in. Or that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, shit, yeah, there you go. That's how you do it. Because, like, uh, Invisible Touch uh, was the uh, first song of the encore, right? So play this, then Invisible Touch. Yeah. Well, I guess, the well, not really. The, the encore was just Turn It On Again. Turn It On Again, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean, though. Yeah. You play it after Afterglow, like after the Cage Medley, before Invisible Touch, I think that would work. I think, you know what, though, I think, you're, I think you do a two-song encore, and I think, because you could start this song with the lights down. Before the lights come back up, it would work perfectly mm-hmm. with all those kind of the weird little drumming. So I think it'd be super cool. Absolutely. You know what? We'll, we'll call them up and we'll tell them that next time they tour, Corey and Kevin say, or Corey says, and Kevin backs him up that you guys have got it all wrong. You need to start your encore with the Brazilian. What are you doing? I don't know if they're touring with Phil anymore, though. He's kind of yeah. in rough shape. Oof. Well, you were talking about on, um, I'm pretty sure that was the last um, episode of Backtracks Aerosmith. You were talking about, you asked Scott Haskin, your co-host on that show, whether he would want to see Genesis with Phil Collins sitting in a chair. And it's funny because I've, I thought when I saw images from that show, I just wouldn't want to go and see that because I don't want to see Phil Collins looking frail because he was this badass drummer, this amazing performer, full of life, full of energy. I don't want to see him, which, you know, and again, it, yeah, his vocal might still be great, but I don't want that to be my abiding memory of Phil Collins, you know? Yeah, and like Scott, there were some times where he needed help, like getting the tambourine in his hand uh, so yeah. he could kind of bang along. And yeah, it's, it's just, a, a friend of mine, big Phil Collins fan, went and saw him in Vegas. What was that? His uh, Not Dead Yet tour, like 2018, yeah. 2019, somewhere in there. And he was sitting in the chair for that. And he said, you know, he was still bopping around in the chair. Like, you know, yeah. it, it, it was okay. But I think once we got into the final Genesis shows there, it was, he needed help getting up on the stage and getting to the chair. And it's just, it, it's kind of, now Ozzy Osbourne is going to be doing the same thing. They're just going to wheel him yeah. out on a gurney. He's going to be hooked up to an IV and he's going to be yelling bark at the moon. Like, I, I, that's not how I want to see my, my jukebox heroes, you know? Oh my God. I think with Ozzy, it's a little bit different because you know, he's, I mean, held together with sticky tape and you know, thumbtacks. And like, I think he's been clinically dead for 10 years and just no one's told us. <laughs> no one's told him more to the point. <laughs> no, no one's noticed. Yeah. yeah. All right. Oh, uh, anything Lord. else from, uh, from, uh, the Brazilian here? No, I think, well, actually, I think, yeah, we had that, well, no, because you, yeah, the, the Marty Rhodes of a bit, we did. Um, did you ever watch Dexter, Corey? No, actually, I never did, no. You didn't? Oh, okay, well, I'll, no. well, then I won't tell the joke, because it won't work. Okay. I, I know what it's about, if that helps. No. There's a bit in Dexter where there's a line, surprise, motherfucker! And that's where that, I always think, oh, Mark Rutherford's still in the band. Because <laughs> the Brazilian is really just, I don't even know if Phil's playing or whether it's programmed. I suspect it's mainly programmed. Um, and Tony Banks just having the whale of a time. What the, look, Mark Rutherford's there with the guitar. <laughs> but, yeah, it's a great section. But no, we're, I think we're done. I think we've, you know, D- Domino dominated. See what I did there? Um, a yeah. lot of this conversation, I think rightly so. But I think we can get to our overall rankings here, Corey. So how have you... Well, ranked? we haven't ranked the Brazilian yet, though. Did we not? Oh, bloody hell. No. I'm running away with myself. I'm sorry. Quit jumping the gun there, you prick. Now, what do you got for the Brazilian? Music 7. I, it's one of those songs where subjectively I love it, and I would kind of I would like to have seen this one live. I think it would be super cool and exciting to hear this. But objectively, I think it's it is a bit repetitive, um, and it's you know Tony's not playing very much, and it's this bewildering array of sounds, and it 
sort of works, but I think it's just... I don't think it's quite up there with everything else on the album, really. Um, lyrics, I, I wrote not applicable because yeah, there are no lyrics. Applicable. Yeah. Um, production three, I think it's another song that suffers a little bit from the drum sound, those cymbals especially, like I said. Um, and I think, it, I think it could be tightened up a bit. I think it could have been shortened a, a wee, wee bit. Um, and I think they... I think they did do different things with it when they when they played it live, if I remember rightly, because I think this is where Chester and Phil play on it too, right? You've got double yep. drums on this one, yeah. So, yep. so performatively, I think it's great, but yeah, so seven and three for me. Well, I was eight and three. Uh, musically, I liked it a little bit better. Yeah. I think the guitar, I think maybe saved a little bit more for me. Uh, that cacophony sounds like you said. I just imagine Phil uh, at the farm with a bunch of milk bottles and just banging away at him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, lyrics, it's Tony's best uh, lyric written song ever. <laughs> he knocked it out of the park. No. And yeah, I, I gave it a three. Like you said, it's it's repetitive. It's maybe a tad long. But I yeah. overall, I thought it was a nice little coda to the album. Like, um, if you're not going to end with Domino, because to me, the, the Domino to throwing it all away transition is a little, you're coming off this big thing, right? This, the Brazilian yeah. should almost go after that, as opposed to throwing it all away. But yeah. j- just a minor uh, nitpick for me. So I gave it an eight and a three. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I think I think it shows the... It, okay, here's the thing. With this album, you know, we talked about with Abacab being the first step away from the prog roots and the prog guys hating it and booing in Germany and everything, or Netherlands, whatever it was. And then they go with Genesis, and then this is really the full step away. Like, yeah, we're not doing the prog rock thing anymore. Oh, except we are doing a, a 10-minute song. We are doing this weird, funky instrumental at the end, which is a quarter of the record. There's only eight songs on this record, and two of them are weird sort of proggy songs. Mm-hmm. And Mike Rutherford had a good point in one of the interviews I heard. He said, you know, it, people forget, or people thought that we just abandoned the long songs. We still did the long songs. They just got overshadowed by the big hits. And because the big hits on this album are so big, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that there's two fantastic little bits of prog magic on here. And prog pop, too. Like I said, the dom- domino is prog pop, and that's a real trick to pull off, man. Because that's a pop song still, too. It's got pop elements in it. It's got great melodies in it. It moves. It's not It's not boring. It doesn't drag. But it's a long song. It's got all these different 34 chords and everything else. So to get that blend right, I think it's, it shows that Genesis, they didn't really stray too far from their roots, I don't think. I don't think so either. But uh, And this is my, like, oh, self-titled is my introductory record. But this is yeah. the one that really, really got me into Genesis. And like you said, they always did the long songs. There's long songs on Genesis. There's long songs on the album coming up. Uh, we can't dance. Uh, Driving oh, yeah. the last spike is is a pretty long one. So yeah, they never abandoned that. But this is just kind of a little proggy pop perfection is kind of how I would put it. It's a triple P, if you will. Uh, my side B <laughs> scores are very close to my side A scores. My side A was nine and a half, nine and four and a half. My side B score is nine and a half, eight and a half, and four. So overall, a twenty-two out of twenty-five or ninety percent. Nice. I'm nine for music. Uh, surprisingly, and I, well, it was surprising to me when I kind of went back, 10 for lyrics on this, I think is lyrically might be the best side of a Genesis album and production 3.5. So for a 22.5, so I think I was just a half point ahead of you. Uh, overall, uh, I'm uh, 44 and a half out of 50, 91%. What was your overall score? I'm 43. Touch? I'm 43 overall. Yep. So you're 86%. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm 89%. Do we average out at 87.5? 87.5. And I have no idea what I guessed for the total. I, I simply have no clue what I guessed. Because it's been really it's been at least two <laughs> sleeps. I don't know what I said. I tell you, 
doing the show tonight, I'm like, oh, I'm, he's going to blow me away. Like, we're not even close. But actually, looking at the score, I'm pretty close. Oh, really? Pretty close. Yeah, I'm pretty confident. Oh, cool. oh no. <laughs> Oh, no, I don't want to listen to that flap, but it's not good. I don't like this confidence. Get welcome to uh, Huey Lewis in the News, Season 2 of the Ultimate Cadillac Clash. Hey, dude. That's one. No, the, no there's an the artist we should definitely cover for sure. So They're in the running. They're in the running. Like, I, watch, you're going to fucking probably, you're going to guess 87.5 and, and, and win probably. Maybe this is some pompous shit like madness. Or... <laughs> we're going to do the entire Jethro Tull catalog. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> We're not doing. I'm out. I'm out. I quit. I retire. No longer podcasting. Get Chaz. Uh, he doesn't have enough uh, shows now. You know. We know. What we all. We really definitely should do is we should. Uh, we should do. Um. Um. Oh, good lord! Uriah Heap, and just trash oh, yeah. every album. Just what it's called. <laughs> These guys fucking suck. <laughs> every song is garbage. Uh, I kid. I kid. I mean, I listened to Scott's podcast, the the Magicians podcast. I. I Again, I, I talked to him, like I DM'd him shortly after listening to that. And actually before I kind of met him, met him, I said, man, I, I, Uriah Heap are one of those bands that just passed me by for some reason. And that first album is Dynamite. I was like, what the, mm -hmm. f why have I not listened to this? Anyway. Hey, their latest album is Dynamite. Like I, I listened to that through Scott's show. Right. Like, aside from like one track where I, that I really didn't like, it's really, really solid. Yeah. Good musicians. But uh, he just posted, he's back posting the Haskin cast. He posted... Uh, my two-episode review of a Thunder's Backstreet Symphony. You have to listen to those shows and tell me what you think of Thunder, because Scott Probably. hated it, and it's one of my favorite records, <laughs> and I need an ally. I need an ally, because okay. Scott has just the worst taste in everything. <laughs> I mean, his favorite Genesis song is Snowbound. Need we say yep. more? Need we say more? <laughs> you know what? I think he's a Closet Who Done It fan. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it out right here. Oh, I'll we'll ask him on the album wrap up, on the season wrap episode, because, you know, we might have to evict him. You know, we might have, what we might have to do is is do do a um, um one of my favorite commercial podcasts off menu. Um, they have a secret ingredient that if the guest says the secret ingredient, they kick him out of the restaurant. And I think me and you should should agree that if if Scott loves one song, and if it's if it's who done it, I think we just kick him out of the podcast, <laughs> put him back in the well, waiting room. I was going to say it's not long before we get Scott, but uh, we have yeah. one album left. But technically, it's got four sides. Uh, when it was released on vinyl, it's a double album, three songs yep. on each side. So we're going to have little shorter episodes, but four of them when we cover We Can't Dance from 1991. The last one in the Genesis, well, the Phil Collins era. Yeah. But it's actually time before we wrap up for tonight, Corey, to play. And yes. then there were three. So, of course, I'm going to give you the names of three artists or bands, including Genesis, and you've got to put them in order of monthly listeners on Spotify. So, and again, we changed it up so Genesis doesn't have to be in the middle spot. Mm -hmm. So they could be anywhere. So okay. I'm gonna I'm, I'm diving into the CMPU this week. Uh oh. So your bands are Genesis, Aerosmith, and Van Halen. There you go. Uh, hmm. I'm gonna guess Genesis third, just right okay. off the bat. Um, Aerosmith is one of the most popular American bands of all time. So is Van Halen. Uh, the, the, this is generally a tough one for me between those two. I'm gonna guess. Van Halen, Aerosmith, Genesis. This is going to surprise you. You're right on Genesis. Uh, seven and a half mil down at the bottom. Van Halen, 13.6 million. Aerosmith, 23.4 wow. million. So significantly higher. Which that really, does that surprise that me. me away. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm not shocked Aerosmith is ahead, but I thought if Van Halen got 13, Aerosmith would get 15. 
is kind of what I thought, how close yeah. it would be. Not 23. Yeah. Holy cow, because, you know, fans of the 90s stuff don't really know the 70s stuff, and nobody likes the 2000 and on stuff. So <laughs> <laughs> how many well, times I mean, are you going to stream Toys in the Attic? Like, Well, I bet you if we, if we go and look, so 23.4 million, I bet you at least, you know, 17 million of those are I don't want to lick your ring, which is a travesty <laughs> of justice. But, you know, people are did crazy. You, did you say I don't want to lick your ring? Is that what you said? Or is it, or is it thing? I can't, remember what, you, I can't remember what you call it. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to lick your thing. <laughs> are, are you kneeling before the queen? Going to kiss a ring, are you? No, not that ring, Corey. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, my the, Lord. The brown ring. <laughs> you heard it here first. Kevin Brown wants to lick the queen's O-ring and not, whoa, not whoa, early whoa, queen. Whoa. Like queen, the queen in her current state. <laughs> Oh, dear me. Well, I was, you know, it'd be very dry. I think it'd be quite desiccated. I don't think there'd be much, you know, you're not going to get any, there's not going to be it, much it, bacteria. It'd have all have left it, by that point, so, you know. It, it would taste like a day-old crumpet. What, what are we now, about nine-month-old crumpet? Yeah. Just wipe the flex off. It'll be fine. Put a bit of butter on it, put it in the toast. It'd be all right. Don't. It's still good. It's still good. It's being such a wuss about it. Holy fuck, did we go on another tangent? My God, I'm not even drinking tonight. I got Gatorade here tonight, and this is what's happening. <laughs> I gotta get probably back my, on the whiskey. It's probably my fault then. <laughs> <laughs> it's always your fault. Well, you know, on but, that note, let's wrap uh, it up, Corey. <laughs> okay, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was gonna keep going. I wanted to ask you, uh, initial imprint, We Can't Dance. We got that coming up uh, next oh, show. Uh, yeah. Where were you in 1991? 1991, I was in my, starting my third year of the of military service, or mili- well, I was in my second year of military college. Um. I'd become a big Genesis fan at that point and was looking forward to the new album. And I got to say, it didn't disappoint me. I think there's a lot of gold on that album. I think there are some more middling album tracks, but there is one song on that album that I think we might have sort of teased in an earlier episode that I is one of my, not just one of my favorite, if not my favorite Genesis song, one of my all-time favorite songs. As a, as a, as a young keyboard player who loved Tony Banks, there's a song on that record that I just absolutely adore and will hear no bad word about. Oh, I can't wait to find out what that is. I don't know if there's a 10105 on that record for me, so uh Not that I don't like it, but we'll we'll find out. We'll find yeah, we'll out. We'll find out. Yeah. You haven't had as many 1010 fives. Because I think I've been a bit more if if my memory serves, and we should go back and look at that. It'd be kind of interesting to do. I think I've been a bit more up and down maybe where you've your, your lines have been a little bit flatter than mine where yeah. i've been sort of i either really like something i'm ah no that doesn't do anything for me maybe yeah you're, know, have to look. you're a bit more of a pussy in that you don't want to offend <laughs> uh, uh genesis fans so you, you're giving out 10 10 and fives like they're nothing i'm giving out 10 10 and five to the songs that deserve them Corey. <laughs> you're just a thief of joy you said it yourself earlier. that's very true that's very true and actually i'm kind of shocked by that too and scott even said it like i'm surprised you're as even keel as you've been and maybe it, the stuff I thought I would hate, I didn't hate. I think it's kind of what it comes down to, right? Like, yeah. if if there was a one, one, and one, and there was who done it, I, I eviscerated <laughs> it because it's legitimately one of the most objectionable things I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, but there's not a lot of that. Like, even in these songs I've never heard before, it's like, well, that's decent, that's good. Abacab blew me away. I'm like, that's a great song. It's still stuck yeah. in my head. I'm still not mad at it. Love that track. So I, I'm getting a lot of hidden gems. Like. Uh, my, my record guy is going to a show in Brandon, Manitoba. He's like, do you want me to look for anything for you? I'm like, yeah, get me Trick of the Tail, get me Duke, get me Abacab. Yeah. Like, um, give me all this early Genesis. Uh, yeah. Winded Withering, buy it, and then throw it like a Frisbee out, <laughs> out the window on the way home. That's fine. But even that one didn't have that many bad songs yeah. on it. Actually, uh, what was my lowest ranked one? I think it might have been Duke. 
No, can't have been, surely. No, you're right, it can't have been. What was it? And then there were three. Yeah. Is my lowest rank, yeah. That's totally understandable. Might have been mine as well. I think so. I think so. Could have been. Um, I think one thing we should do, and we, we should put in, I'll, I'll put a pin in this, and maybe I'll write it down, is when we get to the album route with Scott, what surprised me a little bit is I haven't ranked my score, my you know, quote-unquote score, for some albums hasn't been as high as I think the album deserves. Because it's that difference between an album is more than the sum of its parts sometimes. And I think that Duke is one of those where, you know, we talked about sequencing of Duke and we talked about, you know, would you change this around and how does this work and whatnot. But that album as an album to me is one of those kinds of like towering achievements. And it's more than the sum of its parts because that's the problem when we're doing this. We're listening to each or I certainly am listening to each individual song and treating each individual song as a piece, like as one piece. And of course, when you do that, you know, you get to Duke's Travels and Duke's End. Well, Duke's End is a cold, or it's, is it a fully fleshed song, fleshed out song? No. And then do you dock that for some? But I think as a piece, so it'd be interesting to sort of, we should probably give a grade to the album and see how that might, you know, in, in isolation from what we scored it and mm-hmm. see what we think of the album. Because to me, Duke is probably an A minus or a B plus album. But I only, I probably only rated, I don't, it probably maybe snuck into an 80, maybe. Or maybe not quite, right? So Yeah, it, if it is 80, it's low. I don't have the rankings yeah. in front of me, but I, I agree because something like uh, Wind and Withering, I'd probably rank lower as an yeah. album experience than I'd, and I think I might have ranked that one because of how the song shook out higher yeah. than Duke, which I would agree Duke should be much, much higher. So yeah. that, that's interesting. We should definitely do that. All right. But maybe not tonight. I'm tired. Not, not tonight. We're old. We're old men. We're old <laughs> men and we got to go to bed and, you know... Um, so, hey, thanks for listening, folks, as always. Um, we appreciate it. We're starting to get some feedback on Twitter and, and Facebook, which is great. Keep talking to us. Um, join us again next week where we are going to be looking at side one of We Can't Dance, um, Genesis's last album with Phil Collins. Check us out on social media at Ultimate Catalog Clash on Facebook and You Catalog Clash on Twitter. Um, I haven't set up threads yet, Corey. I will do that at some point. I check out my other shows, The Tom Petty Project and Seaside Pod Review. And if you want to find me personally on Twitter, I am at Kev Brown Canada. Corey. Where can our fine friends find you? And how many millions of podcasts have you consumed since we last spoke? Well, you know what? Uh, maybe dropping one. I don't know. We haven't done a backtrack theme music in a while. John and I just have very differing schedules. So I might be down one. Who knows? But uh, I do do the Van Halen show and the podcast will rock. We have 27 songs left on the wheel, 27, 29, something like that songs left on the wheel before we decide what the heck we're going to do after that. Uh, for the Aerosmith show, uh, we're not quite halfway done. So we still got quite a few episodes of that one. That's Backtracks, Aerosmith Revisited. Uh, you can catch us there. Uh, you can find me at CD Morset on Twitter. Uh, please, only positive things. I, I'm trying to keep negativity out of my life, even though I, I just ragged on Tony Banks for an hour and a half. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I do it out of love. It's really tough love for him. He's really got to burn that sweater. It was awful. <laughs> really, 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 really bad. <laughs> Yeah, you know what, people? If you want to come and rag on someone, you fucking leave my friend Corey alone. You come and talk to me. I'll, 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 we'll do the Mark Kamara thing. I will be the human shield in between the negativity and Corey. We don't need negativ- negativity in Corey's life, especially because he's going to be recording for... He's going to be up for about 68 hours on the telephone coming up, so you just leave him alone. That's right. See you next week. <laughs>